Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. In the UK today, we face a triple threat of climate change, energy scarcity and a cost of living crisis. The Chancellor, Rishi Sunak's spring statement was a chance to address all three, but many see it as a lost opportunity because it not only failed to help the poorest in our society, but had, as Caroline Lucas, Green MP says, a climate-shaped hole at its heart. Welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. Today, my guests will be discussing what citizens can do with their money to rise to the challenge the Chancellor missed. Simon Mundy is Moral Money Editor at the Financial Times and author of A Race for Tomorrow, Survival, Innovation and Profit on the Front Lines of the Climate Crisis. Simon, thanks so much for being with us and hello. Thank you very much for having me. Simon, I do have to ask, though, what is a moral money editor as opposed to any other kind of money editor? Right. So moral money is a section of the FT that was set up a couple of years ago to focus on what we at the FT see as being one of the biggest stories in the world at the moment, certainly from a business point of view. And that's the intersection between environmental and social impacts and business and finance. And this is a core story for us now. You know, in the past, perhaps some people would have seen this as being quite marginal. It's all about do-gooding and it's all about PR fluff. Now, what's referred to as ESG, environmental, social and governance impacts and, and issues in the financial industry are huge. ESG branded funds are an enormous part of them and a hugely fast growing part of the financial industry. So Moral Money basically is a platform uh, within the FT to, to look at these. It's a newsletter that goes out three times a week and is published uh, on the FT website, looking into what impacts are businesses and the financial sector having uh, in these areas. Thank you. And that's a perfect segue into my other two guests, um, uh, Kenneth Green, who is campaigns manager at Make My Money Matter, which is a people powered campaign fighting for a world where the public have the knowledge and power to align their pensions, savings and investments with values. So very much the territory that you were just talking about, Simon. Kenneth, hello. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Amanda. Great to be here. And our third guest is Alex Smiths, and I'm delighted to welcome Alex because she is a senior associate at Evershed Sutherland, who've been kindly supporting Planet Pod for the past year. And Alex works in the banking and finance group. She has experience in leveraged and acquisition finance, investment grade corporate finance, real estate, project finance and debt capital markets. Alex, you're in the same space a little bit as, uh, as, as Simon there. And thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So I guess to get us going, we should talk a little bit about, about that statement. And, you know, it's probably fair to say, isn't it, Simon, that, that, that worrying about money is the thing that keeps most people awake at night. It certainly does keep me awake at night. Um, did you see anything in, in that Chancellor's Spring Statement to help us sleep a little better? Well, if you're a driver, you'll have been pleased to see the cuts in fuel duty, at least if you're a driver who's concerned more about the cost of fuel than about the, the energy transition, I suppose. Um, you know, fuel duty cuts have always been seen as something that's a very, it's a politically popular thing to do. Um, but actually, when you think about it, it's, it is regressive. It benefits better off more than worse off people. The worst off people um, in this country don't have cars by and large. Um, so it's actually, if you, if you were looking for ways to help the people in society who really need help, actually a cut in fuel duty wouldn't um, be the, the best way 
to go. Um, and you mentioned the lack of an emphasis on, on the climate. I think by and large, um, I think political experts don't see this chancellor as being someone who's hugely enthusiastic about um, action on, on climate change. There was very little mention of, of, of the climate in this statement. There were some tax cuts um, on things like solar panel installation and home insulation, so that's helpful. But by and large, I think many people would see it as a missed opportunity where the climate is concerned. Mm. And it was interesting, wasn't it, because the, the, the VAT, um, VAT cut on, on solar and renewable heat incentive um, related projects, so like, you know, renewable energies and, and heat pumps, you know, was vaunted as, as, as a big deal. But actually, they were only subject to a 5% VAT charge anyway. So <laughs> it isn't right. such a huge giveaway in, in, in that sense, is it? Um, the, yeah, the, the car thing is quite interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose the rationale is um, if we reduce fuel duty, we'll reduce the cost of petrol, which will in turn help reduce the cost of goods and services in the supply chain. But I think I wouldn't be alone in thinking that that probably will never get passed on to the average consumer and it will just get absorbed into, you know, into a slight reduction of costs for, for big, you know, big fuel users, whether it's it's um, commercial fleet transport or, or individual personal transport. So it isn't it isn't much of a bonus. And there's there's also a huge kind of, uh, you know, energy and oil and gas related s- section of money sloshing about there, isn't there? I mean, I think somebody described it as too much money. They know what to do with, you know, some of those big oil producers. So another lost opportunity by not taxing them and not having a windfall tax. Well, that that's a whole other story, isn't it? The windfall tax. I mean, there, there are arguments against it. And I, I think, um, you know, there, there are a lot of people who who do actually care a lot about the uh, the energy transition who say, well, windfall tax is not really the um, the, the the solution. Um, you know, these companies can reasonably um, say that you know we also have times when we're very unprofitable, um, but it's. I, I think um, it would have been politically popular, um, actually. I think um, it's very, very difficult um, for a lot of people who are, are really struggling to make do, um, who, who are struggling to pay their energy pills that are going, uh, going up by such large amounts to see BP and Shell raking in the sorts of extraordinary profits that they've been, that they've been getting. I think fundamentally, what I would want to see, rather than a, a windfall tax, a one-off to um, to to win uh, some quick support from the public, I'd want to see a really serious carbon tax. So really bake in uh, a serious structural change there, which I I personally think would be more effective. That's something I'm sure we can talk about later. Mm. Alex, you're nodding. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so I think, I think it's just a comment in respect to the windfall tax and particularly within the wider view of sustainability and particularly talking about social issues as well. When we are considering the energy transition, it is very much a conversation on the just transition, which I think is quite pertinent as well to the cost of living crisis, which is being discussed. So very much agree with Simon's views there. For listeners who don't know what we mean by just transition, what how would you describe that? Just transition is principle within the energy transition to make sure that nobody's being unfairly sort of left behind. So as much as we do consider in respect of that oil and gas producers and fossil fuel producers do have a detriment effect on the E within ESG and the environment, there is also a social aspect that these are employers and that needs to be parity and that when we are transitioning from these types of fuels, there are also then equal opportunities for these people to continue without too much detriment on their personal effects. 
Okay, so that's making sure that the, the individuals who are working in those industries are not left high and dry, as well as making sure that the, the alternative sources of energy are available to the widest possible population. So that would, I guess, would include subsidies for, for renewables or alternative energy sources, wouldn't it? Be making sure that in respect of a transition, if we were going to, if sort of renewable energy sources are going to be rolled out to the extent that we do rely on them, as we do at the moment at fossil fuels, that there are sufficient opportunities for those people to move across. So it is just, that's one of the solutions within the trust transition. And the other one is sort of sustainability linked financing to make sure that these companies and which we traditionally consider less sustainable or green are able to transition without having too much effect on the social effect. Okay, so 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 how would how would that work? I mean, you, you know, you you you're very much at the kind of sharp end of, of of capital finance and you know big business finance, which for many people is a world away from the type of you know um, engagement with money that they have. You know, we're thinking about how we pay our bills and you know how we earn a living, and so you're looking at some of those structures and those um, instruments that help some of this happen in a wider marketplace. How, how how would that happen? Where do you see the opportunities for a, for a, for a really positive green investment future around some of the kind of capital markets and the finance? So, um, in respect to particular transactions, and as been mentioned, there are a multitude of instruments which financial institutions, asset managers, effectively people who have money to lend or or advance to these companies can use particular instruments which encourage sustainability behaviour or can only be used for sustainable purposes. These are um, broadly branded as green finance, but when you get into the nitty gritty, and I apologise to be the lawyer here, but (laughs) there is a fine distinction between the types of instrument that you can have. So to take the two broadest categories, you have use of proceeds, which are green and social instruments. So the proceeds of those investments can only be applied to green or social projects or properties. We see that in sort of real estate finance, so green buildings and green asset managers um, for office blocks. They have to meet certain certification requirements or they can be used as well for addressing particular education or social issues. So ensuring better social care and health institutions and the money has to go towards those particular projects or proceeds. And then you have sustainability linked uh, instruments, which is where the behaviour of the corporate must improve on a sustainable basis. So on the E or S values. So this is what is sort of being looked at in terms of transition financing. So this is where typically non-sustainable or considered non-sustainable companies could really see their way out of being considered non-sustainable, particularly on ES, ESG factors. Okay. And would that apply to, to some of those oil companies, those fossil companies that Simon was talking about? They could transition from being, you know, dirty in inverted commas to being clean and green through that mechanism? In the broadest sense, I mean, you need, do need to look at a case-by-case basis. And there are examples of sustainability-linked financing being used within fossil fuel markets and fossil fuel entities. But again, it's, and I'll, I'm happy to take, <laughs> come into this conversation later, but it's very much a case-by-case basis. And what needs to be looked at as what has been called green does need to be examined quite closely. Do you think, Kenneth, we're in danger of um, being subject to a bit of greenwashing? Because, I mean, I know a lot of what you do at Make My Money Matter is look at where we can, as citizens, take action to try and force behaviour change from those big companies. And yet, you know, 
we hear from the fossil fuel companies, others, that they're falling over themselves to become greener and more sustainable. And, you know, suddenly um, something that was dirty is now clean. So do, do you think there's some greenwashing going on out there? And if there is, what can we do about it? Yeah, I, th- I think it's definitely a risk. I think we've all kind of seen the news about kind of oil companies, fossil fuel companies making so much money based on their kind of oil and their fossil fuel reserves. But when you look at their advertising, you would never be able to tell these companies actually work in some of those sectors. So I always find it fascinating watching kind of PR exercises from some of these companies. It's all sunflowers and green electricity and things. Actually, a very small percentage of their money actually comes from those sectors. So I think it is being kind of alive to that. And I think that it's important that if people are looking at where to spend their money or where their pensions are invested to dig a bit deeper and see where that money is actually going. And I think kind of linked to transition plans, it's really important that we involve these companies in the transition because they employ so many people, they have so many assets, but it's really about these companies standing up and making sure those transition plans are actually decent, that they're committed to net zero, that they're actually involving kind of organisations and involving their staff. I've got a brother-in-law who works in an oil so he works kind of um, working with kind of rigging and things and all of his colleagues are really desperate to actually move across the green kind of economy but because those transition plans are in place they aren't actually able to so I think it's a fascinating kind of example of the government really needing to kind of step up and make sure the transition plans are effective so right now we've got the treasury working on those transition plans to ensure that they actually kind of meet the kind of requirements that they need to have rather than just being kind of a, a pathway they'll never actually follow. Yeah. And, and and it's really interesting you say that they're kind of desperate to transition because they've got really, you know, useful skills, haven't they? Applicable skills. And they could move out of that that oil-based business into something that perhaps into renewables. And then I'm assuming, you know, making a big assumption here, but I'm assuming your brother was possibly based in Scotland. Um, and we know <laughs> and we know that we know that, you know, the renewable industry in Scotland has really taken off. And and, you know, obviously we need skilled engineers and skilled operators. So so there's a kind of personal employment dimension isn't there as well as a bigger personal investment decision dimension to some of this conversation as well as then that user of services so it operates on those three those three different levels that all intersect for us as individuals doesn't it Mm, definitely and I think if you look at the kind of offshore potential the UK as a whole is absolutely huge so for us to really kind of take advantage of that and invest money in those sectors so we can have a greener society a greener economy is really important so I think that transition plans are going to be hugely important when the government announces their strategy towards the end of the year Mm. and what about green investing I mean I think some of us will probably have heard of things like green bonds. Alex, I'm not sure I would necessarily know what a green bond is. What what is a green bond? Isn't it something and is it something that I can as just as an individual invest in or is it a, only that kind of corporate instrument that you were describing earlier? No, not at all. Of course, there are um, green bonds and financial instruments which can be invested in by individuals. This is more um, a very technical point, which is sort of taken up at bond lawyers, but it is something which um, individuals can hold and can invest in. It's what I think is more helpful in terms of finding out what exactly can be invested in would be speaking to a financial advisor who are now under increasingly heavier obligations and duties to consider ESG aspects and also to communicate with their uh, customers and their clients regarding green credentials and exactly where their money's going and how it performs against their particular um, ESG criteria or where they'd like their money invested. 
But to speak to just what was mentioned earlier um, or previously when we were talking, a green bond is one of the use of proceeds. So it's where you should feel absolutely confident that the proceeds are going to a green investment or a green project. Um, again, it's not just green, it can be social as well. These markets have been absolutely exponentially growing over the past couple of years. Um, I think we had a record-breaking year of issuance last year globally. The US markets are particularly busy. Um, it's growing throughout the world, though, so it's very inter- interesting. Alternatively, you could subscribe, I guess, to just to, to Simon's Bulletin three times a week, which presumably would would you know you're giving a bit of a plug to the FT here. But presumably, those are the sorts of subjects that you're covering, are they, Simon? The sorts of things you're trying to unpick and get under the skin of. Yeah, absolutely. And as I mentioned earlier, this is an absolutely unbelievably fast-growing part of the financial industry, and that's exciting, but also to some degree worrying. A lot of people are spotting an opportunity to make a lot of money. Um, And we need to make sure that that money is being made um, while having an impact. Um, Because if we simply throw money as investors, be that as personal investors, small investors, or as companies, if we just throw money at anything that sounds green, um, that doesn't help the the situation. And I think to a certain extent, that has been what's happening. Um, So some of these instruments, I mean, so green bonds, for example, are really interesting. As Alex said, the the, the proceeds should be used for something green. But the company itself, for example, so Repsol, the Spanish oil company, issued a green bond. And that's controversial because some people say, well, you know, you, you buy a green instrument, but you're actually giving money to an oil company. And, you know, so some people are very uncomfortable with that. Others say, look, I mean, this company is, is trying to make a transition. And so this, this is all perfectly fine. But the point is, it's controversial. Um, you have sustainability linked bonds, um, as Alex said, which are um, linked to certain targets. And there can be penalties in some cases if those targets are not met. But one bond in particular um, issued by the Israeli pharmaceutical Teva, a pharmaceutical company, very, very small difference, actually. They were on the hook for a a sort of negligible amount of money. So you you can have some of these instruments where you sort of think, like, great, I'm I'm meeting my target of investing in something that is branded as sustainable. Um, but in fact, it might not be achieving what you think. And then the, the third point is that a lot of um, ESG-focused funds, they're focused on what they exclude rather than what they include. And I think a certain number of retail investors would be putting their money into a fund that's branded as ESG and sort of assuming that they're going that the money is being used to fund things like renewable energy, things that are going to help the planet. But actually, this, this might just be excluding a certain number of companies and you know the, the bulk of it would just be going into Facebook and Google, or potentially actually even into oil companies, because a, a good number of ESG funds actually do have oil companies in there. So it's important to deliver that scrutiny, and that, that's one thing that we try to do with Moral Money. This episode of Planet Pod is supported by leading international law firm Evershed Sutherland. It feels like a bit of green smoke and mirrors out there. And, and you know, can, how can, I mean, obviously, you know, we can we can delve, we can look at, we can read reports, we can look at the, 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 the reports that Simon produces for his bulletin through the FT. But how can we as just ordinary citizens navigate our way through this? Because this is a really complex set of financial instruments, of different pension funds, of investment schemes. I mean, it, this looks like a maze. Where, where would we begin? 
Yeah, and it's a really good question. I think that one of the big issues with the financial sector is 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 that big maze. And there's so many, if you look at a diagram for the financial sector setup, you've got about 15 different layers once you put your money in a bank account or put your money in a pension fund. And where it goes, it kind of just disappears in some ways off to the ether. So you have to kind of look at those organizations and those folk you actually have direct links to so you can actually talk to them and lobby them so and make my money matter we very much focus on the pension funds because for most people a pension fund is where most of your money like you'll have more assets from your pension fund that you might do from in your bank account or in others because people just generally save quite a lot of money especially with auto enrollment so it's really to speak to your pension fund and just ask them what they're doing to safeguard your money and what they're doing to make sure your money is actually invested in in green green kind of economies and green kind of um, nature-based solutions and things like that so we've got about 2.7 trillion of uk uk pension funds are worth 2.7 trillion which is a huge amount of money and we've already seen a trillion of that committed to net zero commitments robust net zero commitments which is absolutely fantastic so really what i would say is kind of get on the phone to your pension fund or go to our website we've got a tool that you can email your pension provider just to find out what they're doing and you'll see a lot of these pension funds Previously, maybe kind of like 10 years ago, wouldn't have been thinking about good investment, wouldn't have been thinking about even really communicating with their with their market, with their kind of people who are saving pension with them, what their money is doing. But we've really seen kind of a big change in the last few years, which is absolutely fantastic. And yeah, definitely kind of contact your pension provider, but also kind of look at your bank as well. There's some great tools online you can find that actually rate banks and rate pension funds in terms of their green credentials so rather than doing the work yourself or like rather than kind of going in to try and look at which fund is x which fund is y and what's actually in your fund go to some of these kind of rating organizations go to your kind of pension fund directly and just speak to them yeah yeah and do you think that makes a difference if enough of us are doing that because you know if, if i as a single person ring up my pension fund and say what are you doing it's not going to have an impact. But how many of us do we need as a kind of cohort to force that kind of change? You'd actually be surprised. So I've worked in campaigns with housing, with air pollution, with other things, and actually pension funds are more likely in some ways to act just because they're not used to being campaigns kind of with or against or to just, they've been a kind of, an organisation, a group that's kind of almost been out of the sphere of campaigns. Most campaigns have focused on banks because they're a bit more publicly known or kind of other, or the oil and gas companies directly, whereas pension funds, actually, most people don't talk their pension. I mean, it'd be interesting. Imagine everyone in this um, panel or this would understand or know where their pension is going. But I bet if you kind of go and speak to your friends or kind of other listeners kind of would double check where their pension is or where their multiple pensions are, a lot of people wouldn't know. So I think that we've found and we've had specific feedback from pension funds that actually it's been our supporter emails that caused them to commit to net zero. There will obviously be some other factors in there and the kind of growing regulatory kind of movements from government are good as well. But generally people realise actually if I don't, if they don't change their pension can I look and the pension funds don't actually take more action on this they're going to start losing companies and losing kind of customers as well mm-hmm. so they I actually generally I mean I'm not just saying this because it's my uh, organization and what we do but like people power does generally make a difference when it comes to pension funds and going green mm. so we can put pressure on them but Alex how can we how can we ensure that a green investment is going to give us the kind of return that we might get from a, a less green investment, because obviously people are saving for their retirement and they want their pensions to be as secure and as profitable and as big when they get to retirement age as they can be. Yeah, thank you. Um, so this does 
so, so in terms of pension fund and pension funds, when they do invest, they are very much um, relying on the advice of um, fiduciaries who then advise them where to invest the money which people have put in for their pensions. So this ESG consideration or consideration of sustainability aspects sits alongside their fiduciary duty in order to make sure that they're investing responsibly with the view to benefiting their clients. There has been some recent precedents and recent comments from um, EU and UK regulators that failure to consider ESG considerations is a failure to perform your fiduciary duty effectively. Um, so this is something which the advice of pension funds and insurance insurers and um, large financial institutions and general asset managers who hold such funds of money are receiving. Now, in terms of comparing the returns of a green investment as opposed to a non-green investment, this is commentary which has been going around like finance markets for quite a while and comparing whether it, as Simon mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, um, it was something which was sort of considered a startup or a side market, something which was um, a new initiative. And we sometimes we did see that companies refer to it alongside corporate social responsibility. And ever since it's sort of evolved out of that and definitely become more. But the grad of non-return coming from a green investment is definitely a myth. And we think it's sort of a consequence now of um, the previous approach of short-termism within um, investors and sort of being compounded by an almost herd mentality amongst investors in the financial system. So what we're now starting to see, and especially since the pandemic and the, the climate emergency is now very much on the horizon with the effects increasingly being felt globally um, across companies and within their investments and assets, that consideration of traditionally longer term aspects such as environmental factors or social factors, environmental capital, natural capital, human capital, are now becoming more implicit within credit decisions and definitely within the credit analysis. So that is where investors are looking at investments and how it's graded. So there was a um, statistic which was coming out recently that um, downgrading of credit decisions is now on a base as one in four of such decisions are downgraded on the basis of ESG considerations. This is sort of taking into account what was previously the distant effects of climate change and um, the effects on society. So, for example, if we look at oil company stranded assets, stranded oil rigs, or particular real estate assets, which are in low um, low areas, sort of just near sea level. Um, but this is now becoming a lot more of an immediate concern. So, we can see that these ESG considerations which previously were additional, are now actually becoming quite integral so that the return on your investments is very much considered alongside the green analysis. That's encouraging to hear. And I think by stranded asset, you mean something that can't be be brought back into a balance sheet because it's become redundant or? Yes, correct. Apologies. Yeah. Yes. So stranded yeah. asset, it's either the actual asset itself or it's the cost to bring it back within use on yeah. the balance sheet. Okay. So Simon, it sounds as if things are getting a bit better from what Kenneth and Alex have just been saying. Would you say that the market and perhaps consumers, whether it's small consumers or consumers, you know, in terms of those making big investment decisions, um, would you say we're a bit ahead of the government and of and, and of policymakers of this, or, or or given, you know, given the lacuna in the budget around climate issues? Yeah, I think it's a really important question. And I think it's really important not to focus only on what we do as individuals or as businesses and not to forget what we can do as citizens in terms of taking part in the political process. I, I think it's really important for us to apply a really thoughtful lens 
to what we do in terms of the things that we buy, the food that we buy, the clothes that we buy, how we travel, as well as, of course, how we invest our personal savings. I think these things are important and they do make a difference and they're already having an impact. But I think it's really important that that doesn't detract from what we do politically, the pressure that we put on politicians to follow through. Because I think um, this sort of individual and business action alone is not going to get us where we need to be. And I, I think the um, the only way that we, we get there is through government action, um, both into, at the national level as well as coordinated international action. And so I have some concern that, that, that there's a wonderful um, climate scientist in the US called Michael E. Mann, who wrote a great book called The New Climate War, where he he voices really serious concern about this. And he says there has been a deliberate effort by big companies to put all the onus on the individual and say, if these individuals just stop being so naughty, then everything will be fine because they, they want to... Um, mitigate against the risk of regulations and carbon taxes that would make things more tricky for them. So, so yeah, I mean, I do think certainly the governments, um, all, all governments really have been too slow on this front. And as individuals, we, 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 we have the potential when we club together, and especially the youngest people, um, you know, and the Fridays for Future movement have been showing just what's possible when we really think about how we can exert pressure on that front. Absolutely. And I would completely agree with you about the kind of failure of, of policymakers and governments to take a really strong lead on this. You you mentioned carbon tax earlier. Just, just tell us what you meant by that. And then I want to talk to you about your book a little bit, because I'd like to get an international perspective on where we sit. Yeah, I mean, this is something which I think to a lot of economists and economists, you know, they, they, they live in, in the sort of economics world to an extent and they have they believe in this mythical creature called Homo economicus. And, you know, <laughs> so, 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 so think, things seem obvious to economists um, that may not always be applicable in the real world. But actually, I do think a carbon tax does make sense in the real world. You know, the problem is that the economic incentives are not there sufficiently to for us to act in a way that will stop cooking the planet. Mm-hmm. You know, it is very, very often more cost effective to take the, the option that's bad for the, for, the, for the planet. You know, it's very often cheaper to, to fly than it is to take the train, all these sorts yeah. of things, yeah. because we don't have an effective price on carbon right across the economy. We do have some, you know, we have a carbon pricing system in, the, in this country as well as in the EU, but it doesn't cover most emissions. It, it doesn't cover, cover transport, for example. Um, so it seems to me that if you put a proper price on carbon, you make sure that every product, um, the, the carbon footprint of that product is rigorously assessed, the polluter pays, and now you have to make sure that the proceeds of that tax are dealt with in a in a good way, in a fair way, in a way that's going to be politically palatable. There's a case for making it revenue neutral, just pay it all out to the population. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's about aligning the economic incentives with what we need to do for the planet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I suppose um, critics would say then that just makes things more expensive for people. But if you distribute the revenue to people, then actually you find yeah. that people have more money to buy those things with, um, so it, it can even out. But it is a challenge. I mean, yeah, it would put up prices. So the big question is what you do with the revenue. Of the- but we could distribute the revenue on a sliding scale, couldn't we, just as we do with you know benefits and support for people who have lower incomes. So you know we can work that out. You know that you don't need to be a genius to do that. I don't think. Um, 
tell us a little bit about your 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 odyssey, your journey. Uh, Twenty six countries was it um, to, to to write the book? Did it start out like that? Yeah, that was always the idea. The idea was to write a different sort of climate book. Um, so this book is not it's not a blueprint. It's not a manifesto. It's not my arguments for how to save the planet. But, you know, there are lots of books like that. And some of them are really good, by the way. Um, but this is a different sort of book. This is about getting out on the ground to some extraordinary places, meeting extraordinary people and seeing what are people doing about climate change right now. I went down a cobalt mine in Congo. I met mammoth tusk hunters in Siberia. I spent time with Prince Abdulaziz, the energy minister of, of Saudi Arabia. I met some of the leading uh, clean energy tycoons from China to Silicon Valley. And, you know, all of these people, you know, they're, they're from incredibly disparate backgrounds. They have an incredible, incredible variety of stories to tell, but they're all part, in my opinion, of a single story, which is the biggest story of the century, which is how is humanity responding to climate change? Because the race is very much still underway. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's called Race for Tomorrow. It's available uh, in all the usual um, book stores. <laughs> um, I recommend yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, of course. And absolutely. And, um, and, and I will be grabbing a copy as soon as I can. Just so just tell me, you know, you, you, how are we doing? You know, were you able to make any comparisons with the kinds of things that are happening here in Europe, UK and Europe with the things that are happening, say, in China? I mean, China gets a lot of stick for being a, a polluter and a, a dirty player, but we forget sometimes they have got the biggest population on the planet. So um, how would you assess what the state of play is, you know, globally and, and, our, and our role in that, if you can do that? Yeah, so I suppose, you know, I, I could talk for hours on this, but in a nutshell, um, my eyes were open for one thing to how severe uh, the impacts of climate change are already. Um, you know, so I was on the road for two years. Um, the things I saw, for example, the climate migration into the slums of Dhaka and Bangladesh, um, the problems with sea level rise in the, in the Solomon Islands, the melting glaciers in Nepal, the melting ice in Greenland, the drought that's hitting people in Ethiopia, the destruction of the Amazon in Brazil and the struggles faced by the indigenous tribes there. All of these things are actually, I think, much more um, urgent and, and terrifying, actually, than people realise. But at the same time, there is so much happening on the other side in terms of um, the mobilization of resources and just the work being done by some really impressive people to address it. And, you know, there, there are some extraordinary entrepreneurs um, and innovators featured in the book. China, yeah, I mean, just to say one example of, of where we stand, I mean, China, um, I had an extraordinary time there. And, you know, obviously, as everyone knows, China is the biggest emitter. China burns huge amounts of coal. Um, that's true. But I do think it's also true to say that Xi Jinping has put clean energy at the very centre of his long-term national strategy. And it makes sense why. I mean, we are moving towards a world that is driven by zero carbon power. And if China is the leader in that space, which it very well could be, and it is in many parts of that space at the moment, and that makes China a very powerful country indeed. And so I met some of the leading tycoons in that space in China. And they were already excited about this and very confident that they were in the most um, fast growing and promising space in the Chinese economy. As to whether the UK fits in um, within that, it's a mixed bag. You know, as we were saying, th things like this spring statement are obviously disappointing to those who care about the climate. At the same time, um, there have been some 
some quite impressive moves. You know, things like the commitment to, to banning internal combustion engine cars by 2030. That's way ahead of most other mm-hmm. big countries. I mean, you know, Joe Biden has an aspiration to get to 50 percent uh, zero emission vehicles by the same date. So, so it's a mixed bag, and it's it, it is at least um, interesting that this is, by most people's standards, a very conservative government, um, and very conservative governments in other countries, from Australia to the US to Brazil, have been very sceptical and cynical about climate action. So at least this is not a government that's openly opposed to climate action in the way that some other conservative governments internationally have been. Mm. Well, I think some members of it are, but yeah, I'll give some you members, that. Some members, certainly. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. We will wait to see what comes out of the energy strategy to see whether that delivers. So so I'm getting a kind of, you know, a 50-50, hopeful, not so hopeful um, um, feel from you there. So some really frightening, and we all know about the impacts of climate change, um, you know, other parts of the globe, but we're feeling them here too, aren't we, in terms of rising sea levels and things. So, you know, but there is still some hope. So we're getting some hope that may be the journalist in you coming out that there's some hope there. What, and obviously, you know, key action from Simon is go out and buy the book. But Alex, what would you have people do? What can people do to try and make sure that, that in, in their economic sphere of influence, whatever that is, that they can do something that's kind of positive and planet friendly? My advice to anyone sort of embarking on improving their sustainability, and it is very a banking lawyer response, get familiar with data and statistics. I think as has been mentioned on this podcast, there are a lot of companies and institutions who are going to make claims about their sustainability and their commitments to society and the environment. Um, But being able to have some scepticism about that and also just investigate any particular claims and really get to know, I think, as you mentioned, we are very familiar with the effects on the climate and on society and where we need to be heading. Um, So that would be my advice to friends and family in terms of how to really make your sustainability journey effective. Mm, absolutely. Be be in a position of knowledge. That's really important, isn't it? And 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 Kenneth, you already said that there's some tools on your website that people can can use to do that. But what would what would you be calling on, on citizens to do? I mean, you talked about pensions, but is is there anything else that we can do as informed citizens to take action? I feel like um Simon's point about kind of looking at you as a political actor and what you can do, I think that's really important. And I think that this government has done decent things on kind of green energy, green strategy, and we've got some other things coming up. I think it is just to be aware as a citizen and hates kind of people harping on about it. But again, your money is also one of the most powerful things you can use. So, I mean, our research shows that having green pension is 21 times more effective cutting your carbon footprint than stopping flying, going veggie and changing energy provider combined. So I think that... Wow. I'm at, yeah, exactly. And I think most people who listen to this podcast will already have kind of like either potentially gone vegetarian or switch energy provider or certainly looked at how they can cut their individual carbon footprint but the chance are their money isn't actually something they've investigated or money isn't something they've done something about and I think that pensions is almost that hidden superpower that people haven't yet activated and I think that yeah as I would say like kind of contact your pension provider and actually make sure they're doing something you'd be proud of with your money rather than investing it in the kind of organizations that are potentially causing damage to the environment and causing the impacts that Simon's mentioned and Simon's seen. Yeah. 
pensions as superpowers. I love that. It's not an image mm-hmm. that we ordinarily get. But so obviously, yeah, I'm going to point everybody to your website because there's lots of tools and resources there. Um, and, and Make My Money Matter is a citizens-led campaign. So let's let's band together. A huge thank you to my guests, Simon, Alex and Kenneth. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, and having that really broad brush discussion that leads us from, you know, a corporate bond through to an individual actor. It's been absolutely fantastic to meet you all. And thank you. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, great to see you. All of those details of, of everything we've mentioned will, will be on our website and, and probably on Twitter too. So so um, a thank you to our producer, Beth, and executive producer, Jim, and obviously to Eversheds, who've been really supportive of Planet Pod over the last year. We, we really appreciate it. You've been listening to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. Thanks for listening and goodbye. You've been listening to Planet Pod. We'd love to hear from you, so please do get in touch and don't forget to follow us on social media. 